from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Known for their support of free markets and free thinking, libertarians haven't cracked very far into the political infrastructure as winners, but they have been historically key to the coalitional success of the Republican Party. But where do they fit now with the rise of Trumpism? Libertarian thinkers Shika Dalmia and Catherine Mangu Ward will join us on Detroit Today to discuss how some libertarians think about the future of the Republican Party and where they fit into conservatism moving forward. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. If you've heard the program in recent weeks, you know that we've been exploring conservatism in our new series, GOP 23, Where the Party At. Thus far, we've discussed how conservatives are misaligned with Donald Trump, what Michigan Republican representatives want, and the policy Republicans hope to enact if they hold enough power in office. But now we want to turn to a sometimes ignored faction in our politics that often aligns itself with Republicans. I'm talking specifically about libertarians. Known for their support of free markets and free thinking, libertarians play a significant role in our politics, which is frequently as the spoiler. That may be due to our political structure. As we discussed earlier in the week, America is unique in only having two competitive parties compete for power. But nonetheless, libertarians haven't cracked very far into the political infrastructure as winners. For example, we haven't had libertarian presidents, and Michigan's only had one representing the party in Congress. But none of that means people don't hold libertarian beliefs and that their coalitions don't impact our politics, particularly in the Republican Party. Think about the libertarian policy victories we've had over the decades. Gay marriage under Obama, tax cuts under Trump and the legalization of marijuana across the country, especially in this state. What's more, libertarians sometimes vote in other parties and often don't vote at all. And that sometimes plays a huge role in who ends up with political power in this country. Well, we have two self-identified libertarians with us about to talk about libertarian ideals, libertarian policies, and how the party of free markets and free thought contrasts as well as aligns with the Republican Party. Shika Dalmia is a visiting fellow with George Mason University, where she started a program to study and resist the rise of right-wing populist authoritarianism around the world and here in America. Her substack is called The Unpopulist. Shika, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Nick. Always. And also with us is Catherine Mangu War, the editor-in-chief of of Reason, the magazine of Free Minds and Free Markets. Catherine, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on. So, Sheikha, let's start with you. What was it about libertarian, libertarianism that uh, caused you to gravitate towards it? Uh, well, Nick, you know, I uh, am originally from India, uh, grew up in the heyday of Fabian socialism in India. And so I experienced firsthand uh, the depredations of the state on economic activity. Uh, You know, this was uh, in the 60s, and uh, we were just out of the world of out of World War Two and into the Cold War. And, you know, World War Two, that was uh, basically two, uh, two evils of the state. As far as I'm concerned, communism and fascism had emerged. Fascism was a use of state for actually malevolent ends, and socialism was a use of the state for good ends, which turned out to be terrible. So for me, the big problem, uh, political problem, was how do you contain this awesome power of the state, uh, which I saw as essentially problematic, and that's kind of what attracted me to uh, libertarianism. Um, at the time, and then of course, uh, you know, its message of human dignity, of all personal freedom, all of that was also important to me, having grown up in a traditional society with 
you know, sort of stultifying hierarchies of caste and what have you. So all of that was kind of part of my attraction to libertarianism. Yeah, we are we are made up of our history. And Shika, you raise a very good point there, because I do find when I speak to people from with backgrounds like yours, especially from overseas, a lot of that does inform their politics, even here domestically. But I want to present the same question to you, Catherine. What was it about libertarianism that made you say, yeah, this is for me? Yeah, I think, you know, there is this story of the state as um, as tragedy that, that Shika is telling. And it's so compelling I grew up in Washington, D.C., and so for me, I saw the state as farce. Um, It's very, very uh, ridiculous up close. And if you grew up in a community, as I did, where everyone's parents worked for the government, you could just kind of see the waste and the silliness and um, and the ways that the government was not working up close. You know, when the Washington Post is your hometown paper, you get another kind of look at the ways that the state fails people. And, um, you know, I came to the bigger picture later, as so many libertarians do, by reading some books. I read Ayn Rand, I read Hayek, um, I read, you know, I learned about economics, and I, I sort of came to these conclusions in a formalized way. But even when I was younger, I think um, it was kind of the, the notion that government is not serving the people it's supposed to serve and not being a good steward of, of the people's money. Um, and, and, yeah, I think that, you know, later on, some of the real triumphs for liberty in my lifetime, such as the legalization of gay marriage, such as um, before my lifetime, the end of the draft. Um, I see those as part of a long story of kind of pursuing liberty that goes back to the Enlightenment. Shika, we talk about libertarianism and perhaps uh, now that we have this background, even though I float it out there as though everybody understands it, it's always good to get the take from someone who's on the inside. So what are libertarian ideals and can you tell us what the guiding philosophy is for libertarianism generally? Uh, Nick, well, as I mentioned, uh, the main idea of libertarianism is uh, keeping the state in its place tightly, tightly constrained. Uh, Different uh, political philosophies have different ideas about state. So communitarianism communitarianism wants to use the state to produce thick-knit communities. Uh, Liberals want to use the state to create, uh, you know, some kind of formal equality. Uh, You have uh, conservatives, virtue conservatives, who want to use the state um, to uh, get, you know, produce a virtuous society. It's only libertarians who see state power as inherently problematic. And uh, so they resist the use of state power for both good and ill, partly because they understand the corrupting effect of state power, uh, of power of any kind, but particularly state power. Um, so that's one element of it. And the other element is that they take uh, uh, um, uh, human freedom, individual freedom, and the equal protection of human dignity as extremely important goals. So, uh, you know, libertarianism has been evolving, in my view, in a somewhat reactionary direction post-Trump. But fundamentally, as far as I'm concerned, sort of pluralism, equal dignity of all, openness to different ideas, different viewpoints, different people, different cultures, is all fundamentally libertarian to me. And that's kind of what I, uh, you know, I think a healthy libertarianism should uphold. Catherine, can you think of any candidates or uh, on the national level or even at the state level that represent these principles of libertarianism for you, for people who want to get an idea or look into someone who's doing it on the national or local stage? Unfortunately, no. Mm. Excuse me. I think that that's uh, I wish that I had any answer to that question. And in past years, I might have. Um, There are often a few folks on Capitol Hill that I could point to. Um, Most recently, Justin Amash from your neck the woods, um, who I think did do their best to bring this voice of fiscal discipline and uh, respect for individual liberty to government. I It's a bleak landscape out there in terms of electoral politics for libertarians right now. Um, I've never been a member of the Libertarian Party, and I'm not a voter. But um, when I look across, say, the Republican primary field um, or, you know, the prominent Democrats, I don't see anyone who's speaking for me as a libertarian. 
We're speaking with Sheikha Dalmia, who's a visiting fellow with George Mason University's Mercatus Center, where she started a program to study and resist the rise of right-wing populist authoritarianism around the world and in America with a substack entitled The Unpopulist, as well as Catherine Mangu Ward, editor-in-chief of Reason, the magazine of free minds and free markets. And you do mention that, Catherine, you're not a member of uh, the Libertarian Party, never have been, but one reason is I think libertarians found a bit of a coalition with Republicans, which is one of the two main parties here in the country. Uh, from the libertarian viewpoint, what is it? Uh, what do Republicans as they currently uh, exist stand for in the minds of a libertarian, Catherine? You know, I think that there is this feeling that libertarians are somehow more allied with the right than the left or that they're sort of friendlier with the Republican Party. There are historical reasons for that perception, including a kind of, um, you know, at least strange bedfellows type coalition during the Cold War against communism. But uh, I would kind of push back on that association. I really do think libertarians are a totally separate thing from um, American conservatism and from republicanism, which are also separate things from each other. Um, at this point, I think the Republican Party has abandoned most of the places where libertarians once overlapped with it. So I think, you know, in my memory, Republicans at least paid lip service to fiscal discipline from time to time. They tended to use the language of liberty a little more often and in ways that were a little more congruent with um, the ways that libertarians would use those words. Those are the things that the Republican Party has moved away from and has moved toward the use of state power, not just, um, you know, in terms of national defense, but also in terms of um, the culture war very aggressively. That's not a new thing, but it's newly central to the Republican Party's sense of itself. And I think all you have to do is look at the way that the omnibus bill is progressing on the Hill this week to know that fiscal discipline is no longer a hallmark of uh, of either party. I think this is a good jumping off point from what you said there, Catherine, because uh, recently former Michigan Congressman Justin Amash was the only libertarian in Congress and was not able to move the Republican Party, as you mentioned. In fact, here's a cut of him talking recently with Jane Coaston on the Argument podcast. Pretty early on, I realized that it was very different from serving in the State House of Representatives in Michigan. In the State House, Democrats were in charge, and I was able to get legislation onto the floor, amendments passed. It was relatively easy to work with people and to get libertarian ideas across the finish line. When I got to Congress, I realized pretty quickly that it was going to be a huge uphill battle because things were so centralized. So much power was concentrated in the Speaker of the House and the leaders of the parties. Early on, I tried to work with Speaker Boehner. I tried to be respectful and kind and all that. And that really didn't work. I mean, it just, it, he, he ended up closing the place down, not to the same extent that we saw under Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi, but he ended up closing the place down more and more as time went on. Catherine, I believe, was already getting into this. But, Sheikha, I want to give you an opportunity to respond also. Why do you think Amash wasn't able to work well with the Republican Party, but was able to get things done under Democratic leadership here in Michigan? Um, well, as he, as he mentioned, uh, Congress is a completely different beast from state legislatures. Um, in you know, in state, uh, Amash was a well-known figure in Michigan. You know, I'm from, uh, I lived in Michigan for a very long time, and he knew the players over here. It's just much more collegial, much more decentralized, as he noted. Uh, but that's not how things work in Congress, where uh, you are doing a lot of horse trading between far more diverse and different constituencies, and you have you know something like. Uh, you know, party king in the role of a speaker who is uh, cracking heads and what have you. So it can't be as collegial uh, a place as a state legislature, I guess, uh, can be. But I did want to push back a little bit against what Catherine said. I mean, she seemed to suggest, and, you know, we were colleagues for a long time at Reason Magazine, uh, that uh, there is just this uh, perception that libertarianism has been allied with the right, but not a reality. You know, Reagan very famously uh, called, uh, described conservatism in his time as a three-legged stool, which consisted of, and each 
leg, you know, consisted of one faction and it consisted of foreign policy hawks, religious and traditional conservatives and uh, libertarians and uh, who were, you know, f- uh, into fiscal discipline and free markets. And this was all because this fusion on the right came together in the heyday of the Cold War. And so libertarians, in fact, have been allied uh, with the right very much. So uh, all the cells, you know, there haven't been very many libertarians who've been uh, elected to Congress, Justin Amash and a few others. But Freedom Caucus um, in the House was, Explicitly, you know, it had very, very self-identifying libertarians other than Amash. They were all, except for Amash, early crossovers to the Trump camp. Ron Paul, who was a libertarian, uh, was also very much a figure on the right, as is his son, Rand Paul. And I think even in terms of policy priorities, uh, libertarians, because of this alliance, have much more emphasized uh, you know, the fiscal discipline and the economic liberty side of things than some of the other, uh, you know, some of the other uh, political causes. And so, uh, you know, I think it is actually a reality that libertarians have been allied with the right. And I, in my view, that's kind of something unfortunate uh, that's coming to, that really came to roost uh, during the Trump years when, uh, you know, libertarians, uh, didn't really champion the cause against Trump and uh, the authoritarianism that he brought into the political landscape. Yeah, yeah, Sheikha, I really appreciate that perspective that you brought there with that answer. In fact, it made me think about how Justin Amash, I mean, he was a Republican when he was even elected. So it's not even as though he ran under the right. libertarian banner. I mean, his his ideals were what they were, and they certainly were more libertarian, but he had the R next to his name in order to get elected. And uh, as we're talking again with Sheikha Dalmia, as well as Catherine Mangu Ward, we also want to talk with you and get you in on the conversation. How do you think liberty Libertarians shape our, our politics. And are you libertarian? What kinds of policies do you want to see enacted in this state and country? How do you think libertarians and libertarian ideology align and contrast with the Republican Party? How much influence do you think libertarians have over what Republicans do? And I'd really also like to know um, what questions you might have for libertarians. What confuses you if you're someone who's Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal? Uh, if you have any questions about what libertarianism is, now is the time to do it, as we do have two very knowledgeable guests on the subject, as we are going to move to the phone lines right now with Jim in Bloomfield Hills. Jim, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Good morning. Um, yeah, there's so many questions. And I've talked to libertarians and they get boxed in by things. Can you can you name a, a, a successful modern state that has been very, very strictly libertarian? Um, you mentioned the, the, the Pauls, but both of the Pauls um, were very, very pro-life. Is, is, is that, you know, government intervention in that part of libertarianism? Um, and Anne Rand wrote that uh, altruism is the greatest evil in history, and she blamed largely um, Jesus for that and Christians. Um, plus, you know, um, there's just Peter Thiel says we can't have democracy and freedom. What he means is for himself. He wants to be able to do anything he wants without restrictions. And when you say libertarian is all about, you know, developing all our rights and all that, who guarantees that? Because the first person with money or power can come along and just weep that all away. And there's nothing to, to stop that. So libertarian is kind of this dream that, that people have, you know, of, of pure selfishness, where that's a virtue, as Anne Rand also wrote. So I just don't understand. There's no practical examples. Most people claim to be libertarian aren't really yet in most ways. Um, but it's something that has pulled the Republican Party, and the Republican Party is, has become this thing where anything Democrats do is wrong, and we have to stop that. And really, they don't do much beyond that because they don't really care about government like libertarians don't care about government. So I just think there's so many holes in libertarianism that it, it doesn't even make a lot of sense logically. So that's, I just wanted to kind of pass that on to you guys thought about that. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, for calling. I mean, you bring up a very, very, a, a, many of the points that I always hear about when people uh, question uh, the libertarian ideas. I'm going to start with you, Catherine, and bring those questions to you. You can answer them in any order you want. But what do you think of Jim's uh, points there? 
Yeah, that's certainly a, a quite a long list of questions, but I'll do my best uh, to answer the spirit of them. Uh, I think that the first point is just all ideologies uh, and all political labels are subject to a lot of those criticisms. Um, individual prominent spokespeople uh, often fail to live up to the ideals. Um, believe me, as disappointed as you are in the failings of Peter Thiel or Ayn Rand or the Paul family, I am 10 times more disappointed. Um, and I think that anyone who, uh, who identifies in a certain way is going to feel that way. For me, um, another way to talk about libertarianism is to say that it um, both recognizes the power of and seeks to further the expansion of the free movement of people, goods, and ideas across borders. Um, and I think viewed through that lens, the last 200 years of you know, the rise of global prosperity. I mean, just lifting a billion people out of poverty, essentially because of increased trade and also an increased recognition of kind of uh, personal freedom, civil liberties, rule of law around the world. Um, to me, that is the strongest case for libertarian values, not any kind of individual politician or, um, you know, uh, news news grabbing billionaire, but instead just the very, very, very basic ideas of toleration, pluralism, and trade, and what that has done for the world. Again, imperfect, imperfectly realized, yeah. um, maybe imperfect on their own terms, but um, that that's where I go. That's where I look when I when I ask the question: Can can libertarian principles work in the world? I think they clearly do. Catherine, I do want to, I'm going to get to you in, in, to answer him in a moment, Sheikha, but Catherine, I just want to clarify there then, under your theory then, whatever policy or principle would advance the free movement of people and trade the most, that would be more consistent with libertarian ideas, whether or not that would mean maybe more intervention for the government. Your goal, you would say the highest priority would just be fostering free movement of goods and people across state well, lines. Well, I mean, Go I... Ahead. You know, I, I have sort of several several different ways I would frame it. But, you know, I think that sometimes um, libertarians do have this problem where and there's a status quo and the status quo maybe doesn't respect people's rights, respect people's individual choices or foster their ability to kind of move around in the world. And so, you know, this this is what it means to be a libertarian in government in theory would be to be activist about repealing some of those laws, rules, regulations. Uh, I don't think libertarianism is apathy at all. Um, but my hypothesis, my belief in, you know, many, many years of working as a political journalist is that it is rarely the case that making government much, much bigger and much, much stronger in the end does promote and facilitate those ends that I want to see. Sheikha, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jim in Bloomfield Hills first in whichever way you would like. Uh, Jim, so, you know, to answer your question about has there ever been a liberal, uh, uh, libertarian country, and the answer is no, uh, because that's not what libertarianism is about. It's not really about nation building. It's about, it's a, it's an ethos. It's a philosophy, like any other political philosophy. And, um, I, and, and just as, I mean, and I agree with Catherine that, you know, every political philosophy has many different diverse strands and feed into it, and they don't all consistently fit together. So, uh, you know, Ayn Rand's libertarianism is not consistent with a certain kind of religious libertarianism uh, that uh, is also very much a part of libertarianism. I think what connects all these strands together is, like I said, is a sort of, you know, skepticism of government power. That's kind of like the heart of libertarianism. And there's a good reason for that. State is the only entity in a society that has a monopoly on violence. And so therefore, we need to contain it. Now, you know, this can, any philosophy that's absolutized in a certain way can become, uh, can turn on itself, I think, and people like Peter Thiel are representative of that. I mean, they have starting started hating government power so much because it interferes with their designs for this techno-utopia, you know, that they will now use government power from the other side to smash the government power from the left, which they feel is holding, their, holding them back. And, uh, you know, this kind of like this anti-liberal hatred 
uh, has become part and parcel of libertarian, a certain strand of libertarianism right now, which is kind of unfortunate in my view. But I think it's a mistake to think of libertarianism as, you know, sort of a political creed that is sort of actionable in some consistent form. That's not what it is. It's a it's an ethos. It's a philosophy. And, you know, and so you have to study it uh, as a philosophy, not as an actionable creed in some ways. I really want to unpack that idea a little bit more, and we will do that. But 313-577-1019, again, with your calls, 313-577-1019 with your calls. And you can get in and involved here at 1019 WDET with Detroit today as we continue unpacking libertarianism and how it fits into the conservative party both now and in the future when we return. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson as we continue our GOP 23 Where the Party At series titled by Stephen Henderson, titled by Stephen Henderson, uh, getting into where the future of the conservative party is. And I do love the title, but I also love the guests that we have with us right now. Shika Dalmia, as well as Catherine Mangu Ward, two libertarians who are here to answer your questions as well as help unpack what libertarian means for us uh, in America now and uh, how it might fit in with the conservative party both now and in the future. But we also want to get to your calls, which you can, again, join us, 313-577-1019, as we move now to Gary in Hamtramck. Gary, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hi. I have a comment or question for your guests. I think the other side of libertarian policy, which your speakers didn't discuss, which people should think about, is I believe that libertarians have always been opposed to all civil rights and minimum wage legislation. It's against their their core philosophy. And that uh, and exa- examples of libertarian uh, extra uh, governmental activity or influ- influence extract might be the uh, the Bundy family, which occupied the federal the Bureau of Land Management offices and protests against grazing policies, and most particularly the uh, government actions to protect the lives of hundreds of thousands during COVID, the restrictions, the mask mandates, the closing of schools, all these run against the core of uh, libertarian policy. It's not just some pie-in-the-sky ideology, but it has real impact. And, And a victory for libertarianism was the passage of the uh, right to work law in Michigan a number of years ago. All right. Well, I do want to present the ideas, the overarching ideas to uh, both of you as one of the things he mentions and he's basically getting at is that uh, without the use of some form of government power, you can have uh, concerns of the way that uh, you'll have, for example, um, Discrimination against people. I think about civil rights legislation, something a lot of people agree uh, should have occurred. But uh, with were people allowed to do as they wished in the South, that would not have been something that would be possible. Or in the times of a pandemic, when you really do need to mount some sort of uh, a group effort to try to uh, promote as much life as possible. However, when you don't know what's going on and you have something that could cause harm to a lot of people, it could be um, it could spread very rapidly under libertarian ideals. Uh, how would you respond to that? I give it first to you, Shika. Um, so <laughs> it's a complicated question. I mean, I uh, I can see why your caller has that perception of libertarianism. Um, and I think it's uh, partly because libertarianism, you know, the way it has evolved, at least in the United States, often fell down on the job and uh, its own promise. Uh, you know, Barry Goldwater, who was uh, in some ways the political godfather of libertarianism, 
um, was in fact opposed to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but it was not because he liked what was happening in the South. Let me point out to your caller that Jim Crow was a system of uh, private and government violence to uh, maintain a certain you know, racial apartheid. That was actually the same in South Africa. It was the state that was maintaining the system of racial apartheid, and very brutally so. So the government had had a hand in maintaining the, exactly the kind of uh, racial violence that, uh, you know, your caller is opposed to. And, uh, that is, uh, that's the kind of thing that libertarianism has always been against. Uh, the reason why libertarians in America, and I have to say the perception of libertarians in other countries like India, where they have been at the forefront of certain, you know, social justice causes is quite different. Yeah. And I think it is because libertarianism unfortunately has evolved as I said earlier, uh, in alliance with the right. Yeah. And the reason, Barry, uh, the reason Barry Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Act was not because he was in any way, shape or form a racist or believed in sort of this uh, violent system of segregation. Yeah. It was because uh, the Civil Rights Act uh, banned uh, private businesses. Sheikha, uh, I, you, yeah. you, so I understand that. I don't want to get too narrowed in on Barry Goldwater because your points are correct, but l- let me try to make this a little bit more principled because one of the things that you've been mentioning here is uh, is just making sure that uh, you, you talk about how you came from India, uh, political power in and of itself uh, was used against the people. It was destructive, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so you want to make sure there's a check on that. Here in America, where you have proper election systems, that check would be the vote. That would be every two years you get to vote for different people in the House and Congress. If they're not representing you, uh, you can vote to elect them in. And we have the opportunity to do that. So where the large concern that you bring up would be unchecked power of the government, that power is checked. It's checked by the people and it's also checked by the courts. Why don't those represent proper checks? Well, I mean, uh, India actually is a liberal democracy, uh, Nick, right. and it has, right. you know, it does hold elections, always had, and, right. uh, you know, they're relatively uh, free and fair. So that's right. not the issue over here. The issue is what I'm saying is in uh, in the United States, libertarians have not been at the forefront of social justice causes, whereas in India, you know, in a country like India, there is a nascent libertarian movement, which is against, for instance, the system of, uh, you know, caste or uh, it has been the champion of uh, the rights of religious minorities. That has not quite been the face of libertarianism in the United States. And that's unfortunate. What I'm trying to say is that's not what you know, that's not what fundamentally liber- the libertarian ethos is. That's one articulation of libertarianism in some ways, in my view, is not a great articulation of libertarianism, which became too preoccupied with narrow economic concerns and not enough with social justice causes. Yeah, yeah. Gary, I appreciate you bringing up those concerns and that call here as we move to our next call. Paul in Royal Oak. Paul, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Okay, so my, my comment is that you know, in listening to this, it's like libertarianism in India is different. Is is different, and the American version of it is, you know, is just different. But my my point is that I don't think that libertarianism as a philosophy can coexist within the confines of a democracy. I just don't think the two could be in the same place. That's my point. Is there a particular reason why? What is the uh, cleave that you see or the tension that's not allowing those things to coexist, Paul? Could you repeat that question again? Yeah. Is there something specifically that you are looking at that shows you that libertarianism and democracy cannot exist themselves, or do you just kind of have that feeling based on your experience seeing it? No, I I feel like it's the way I look at it, including her um, reference to Barry Goldwater, it's like, libertarian ideas seem to infiltrate the Republican Party in the sense of, oh, no government. Like, you know, if people are poor, deal with it. If people are in a state, you know, whatever, if they they can't pay for their education, no government should be involved. That's the concept that we have in this country, at least that I have, about 
what is libertarianism, what do they believe. Yeah. It's like a real extreme thing that I feel infiltrates at the edges, and maybe even in the middle now, into the Republican Party as the party, the only other party that we have in this country, because we don't have a multi-party system like in India. We don't have that. Yeah. So they have many, many, many choices. Many. I can't, you know, I, I appreciate that clarification and question, Paul, and I'll present that to you, Catherine. I know that you haven't said here today that you believe in no government, although a lot of people when, you know, are putting forth libertarian ideas. That's what it seems to always come down to. But I present Paul's concerns. Do you believe libertarianism can coexist with democracy and why, Catherine? I give that to you. I do. I think that um, our system is built in the United States um, around the idea not only of representation, but also of protecting the rights of of minorities within the context of elections. And I think that's a way of thinking about libertarianism as well. So one thing that American libertarians want is for people who don't make totally mainstream choices in their lives to have the freedom to make those choices. So again, I'm thinking here of like people's personal relationships, you know, their, their sex lives, their work lives, the contracts that they make. Um, these are uh, all things that are tightly constrained by the state and that libertarians would like for people to have maximum choice, especially always when other people are not harmed, when you're not doing violence or harm to others. Um, but I, you know, I think that this question of, for instance, you know, education, um, I often I often kind of want people to ask the question, what what are we working from? What is the status quo? And I think that many, many people would agree of all political stripes that our ed education system in this country is failing a lot of kids uh, and failing a lot of college students from the from the point of view of how expensive it is, the debt they're taking on, that kind of thing, but especially K through 12. And, um, you know, doubly so in the last couple of years because those kids have been, you know, doing virtual learning, not been at school. There have been a lot of learning losses. Um, and I think that what, liber what libertarians are bringing to that conversation, for instance, isn't, sorry, suckers, you're on your own. I think what libertarians are bringing to that conversation is, we need to rethink this system and we need to move more of the decision making back to the parents, back to the individuals. We need to offer school choice, which is a real hallmark of libertarian ideology in the United States and around the world. Um, that's just one example. But I think there's there's just this huge area between exactly what we have now and nothing at all. And the vast majority of self-identifying libertarians or people with libertarian sympathies in the United States just want to move directionally toward more freedom. I think you see this also, for instance, um, in a place where libertarians are allied with the left, which is uh, marijuana legalization. That's not the Republican Party. That's Democrats and people who identify as progressives and libertarians work with them on that for the same reason. Yeah. No one is being harmed by personal choices. And, you know, we want to move away from this incredible state power that puts millions and millions of people um, in contact with law enforcement thousands of people in jail. So that's just another example. Start with the status quo and then libertarians say, could this be better? And the answer is almost always yes. Yeah, Catherine, I'm really, I appreciate those responses and you do uh, show those synergies that also happen on the left, but I'm glad you brought up something specific like school of choice. I hear this a lot and in theory makes sense. Give the individuals, give the local jurisdictions more power. My question is, what is the libertarian response to a failing school of choice? You give the school to the local community, it doesn't work for whatever reason. Lack of resources, people there who aren't interested, corruption, I'm not sure. What is the libertarian solution to that uh, scenario? Does it just go under? Does the government step in? How do you fix that problem? So I think, the again, the place to start here is, well, what is the current solution? What is the current response to a failing public school? And the answer in the United States in most places is keep it open and give it more money. So right there, I think that's not a good response. That has historically not been proven to work for the kids in those schools. When we talk about schools of choice, that can mean a few different things. One is if we're talking about charter schools here in Washington, D.C., we have a very robust charter system. 
Um, when those schools fail, their charter is revoked. Um, so there's still government action, but it's at the highest level. And then the way that the school conducts its day-to-day -day business is more autonomous. The same is true with vouchers. These are all ideas from Milton Friedman, who's one of the kind of godfathers of libertarianism. And um, school choice, as it has played out in the United States, I think is a pretty cool testament to how an economist can kind of dream up an idea and um, and it can make a lot of families' lives better. 313-577-1019 to get involved with the conversation. Again, 313-577-1019. When we return, we will speak with Mary in Gross Point as well as get to your calls and take a look at uh, where uh, co uh, the Conservative Party and Republican Party can coexist. Is there any uh, room for coexistence in the future? What do libertarians think about conservatism in the future? We'll unpack all of that next as Detroit Today continues. WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, joined right now by two libertarians to discuss libertarians, conservatism, and the Republican Party uh, with a longtime guest, frequent contributor, uh, Sheikha Dalmia, who's a visiting fellow at George Mason University, as well as Catherine Mangu Ward, editor in chief of Reason, the magazine for free minds and free markets. Sheikha, by the way, has a, Sheikha Dalmia has a Substack you can check out, The Unpopulist. Right now, though, we're going to the phones. Mary in Gross Point, you're on Detroit Today. Yes, I may have missed part of the, my question, the answer to part of my question when I was asking it. But um, it seems to me that a lot of what I read about neolibertarianism is economic ideas that favor privatization and that haven't always been very positive in terms of progress. The, the privatization that's occurred in Detroit schools um, has not been overall a success. The uh, ratings for those schools fall at or below the poor ratings for some of the public schools. Um, is is does neo-libertarianism differ from libertarianism and is neo-libertarianism privatization uh well i mean they i bring that point to you sheikha do you have a response for mary and gross point uh i'm actually not familiar with the term neo-libertarianism right. i'm not exactly sure the, what that means you know in terms of privatization of schools. I mean, I have to agree with Catherine over here. You have to, uh, you know, say compared to what? Uh, public schools uh, in Michigan, in Detroit, have been an abysmal failure. Uh, the private, uh, the, the uh, schools of choice uh, reform, I think, is still sort of small and in a certain nascent stage where the rules are still very much uh, set by the government and in a way that are not really conducive to the success of a lot of these schools, uh, in my view. But even despite that, I think when a private school fails, that's not a failure of the concept of uh, the schools of choice. That's actually, I think, proof yeah. of concept in that public schools, when they fail, they get rewarded by, you know, more funding and uh, more control to the government. And here, these schools just go out of business, business, just like any other private enterprise that's not functioning goes out of business. So, uh, you know, so in that sense, I'm, you know, I'm not kind of seeing uh, the critique of uh, school choice the way some of your callers are. Yeah, I have a lot. Of the, first of all, Marion Grossboy, thanks for your call. Uh, I have a lot of responses to that, but I also have a lot of calls, and the calls are more important, so we're <laughs> going to move to those first. Daniel and Hamtramck, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Yeah, um, so I just see that schools of choice and charter schools as being sort of this Band-Aid, like many things we do in this country. We uh, tank the institutions we have in place for political or financial or whatever reasons and instead of repairing those institutions that you know we created for a reason 
we try to find these band-aids to fix them, like nonprofits and things like that, instead of really, you know, focusing on creating a good government system that uh, serves all the people. And uh, um, that's my comment. I'll, I'll get off the phone. I appreciate the call. We're going to give that to you, Catherine. Any response to the caller? Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to that. I, you know, I'm a political journalist. And so most of what I do all day is try to think of ways to make government better or to talk about ways that it is failing and needs more scrutiny. Um, at the same time, I think there's no particular reason that our default assumption should be that government does much of what it does. And education is a good example. You might say, listen, there's clearly a public interest in an educated populace. I don't think anyone would debate that. But how do we how do we get to that end goal? And I think it's very, very likely that the answer isn't a kind of monopolistic central provision of that good. Um, we were talking about privatization earlier, and I think there are a bunch of examples of privatization going well. Not always, um, but um, for folks who have ever shopped at a government liquor store versus a private liquor store, I think um, there's a pretty clear contrast there. Um, and that's a movement that has gone through the country, privatization of of those things. Um, and if you watched um, any of the SpaceX, NASA rocket launches, that's an example of successful privatization. NASA had basically lost the ability to build rockets. Yeah, Catherine, and, I, I just want to make yeah. sure I clarify. The, the point isn't so much that government always gets it right. The point is that it can get it right. And I think the distinction we're trying to figure out here is who's doing it better most of the time, A, and if it's not occurring, what is the recourse? How do you correct? to make sure, hopefully, that we're talking about the same thing here. Just like, I don't want to straw man uh, your concept of libertarian uh, with what I hear from other people in terms of it being like, oh, free everything, free markets, free everything, no government at all, uh, just to make yeah, sure that I, we're on that point. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I guess I just, you know, I do want to, as I say, question the default assumption that sure. if something is wrong, we should invest in the government solution. I, I, I just understand. don't like, I think that's the, that's kind of the missed concept. Gotcha. Here. Gotcha. And Tina and Ann Arbor, you're next. We're uh, running up on the end, but go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Okay. Uh, yeah. A couple of things. The second, the second uh, speaker, I believe Catherine uh, mentioned some things where libertarianism happens to dovetail with progressive policies. For example, hands off, in terms of what people do in their bedrooms and sexuality, privacy, that sort of thing. However, she also mentions the slogan of um, parents get to decide, which is a slogan being used in Florida and elsewhere to actually trample the rights of minorities. For example, which parents get to decide? It's not the, it's not the, the gay parents of children. Is it the African-American parents in a majority white school? So... That slogan, that libertarian slogan, shows that it is not for social justice. Secondly, uh, the first speaker, I don't know if it was the first, but anyway, um, speaks about being for social justice causes and gives example of Barry Goldwater being uh, against the Civil Rights Act, not because of racism, supposedly, but because he didn't want laws inhibiting the rights of private businesses to discriminate, basically. So uh, my point is you cannot be for social justice and also be against the laws that prohibit, uh, that support, that I'm sorry, that would enforce social justice and prohibit discrimination. Uh, when we talk about a government solution, we are talking about uh, a solution that people, that the people have supported as enforced through the government. So you can't be for social justice and be against the laws that enforce that social justice. Tina, uh, I really appreciate uh, both of your questions. And you presented uh, one basically in response to each of our uh, guests. So I'm going to present them to them in turn. Also, starting with you, Catherine, what response do you have to Tina's point uh, to discuss with you? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's... Um, I, I understand her point of view. I would say um, in Florida right now, with respect to education, that is not libertarianism in action. Um, DeSantis uh, and his move to curtail school curriculum, to um, restrict the speech of teachers and librarians, I don't think that's consistent with libertarianism. And I'm just as alarmed as the caller is. Um, I don't think that school choice is the culprit there. I think that's very classic authoritarianism. That's very, very classic um, kind of Republican culture war stuff. So I, I would just say, 
a, a truly robust school choice system, I think, would give those you know parents of color, um, LGBT parents, more options to find a school that works for their family. Yeah. And I wish I wish they had those options, and I wish that DeSantis was pursuing that instead of the path that he's taken. Right. And uh, to the second question for you, Sheikha, regarding uh, her analysis, Tina's analysis of Goldwater, I present that to you. Yeah, so, you know, I think what she is uh, railing against over there is a simple kind of majoritarianism where uh, majority rule, whether it's in schools or whether it's in any, you know, kind of other institution, uh, kind of is the principle by which uh, political disputes are settled. So in uh, Florida, just because, you know, the majority of the parents happen to be sort of uh, white and conservative, they can force their choice on uh, minority parents. But that, to me, the control on majoritarianism, the majority usurping uh, the reins of power, whether they are in the state or elsewhere in the society, is exactly what libertarianism is against. Libertarians want to uh, put checks on that kind of majoritarian control by building in a concept of individual rights, which is extremely consistent with uh, social justice concerns. Now, I, I keep saying I concede that the libertarianism that we have seen emerge in the United States has not always been consistent with those ideals, but libertarianism properly understood is first and foremost for the underdog and the powerless who are being oppressed by these systems of majoritarianism and majoritarian control. Um, I thank you so much for your call, Tina, as we are running up against the end of the show, but uh, very fascinating conversation. I wish I had time for more. Unfortunately, I don't, but Catherine Mangu Ward, thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. And Sheikha Dalmia, thanks again for returning. we got to continue this conversation in the near future, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Nick. Absolutely. That's going to do it for us here on Detroit Today, 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tune in tomorrow when we will talk with Anna Sale of the Death, Sex, and Money podcast about a new series on estrangement and why people cut ties with people and places they love. We'll see you again tomorrow.